All right, hey, welcome to uh, Big Valley Grace, uh, especially if this is your first time with us. Welcome over in the, the venue, those of you that are watching online, blessings to uh, all of you. Uh, you can take your Bibles and turn to the book of Ephesians, okay? If you don't have your Bible with you today, all the verses will come up on the jumbotrons. And if you don't own a Bible, all you got to do is come into the altar room and uh, we'll give you one. Last night I gave out a whole lot of Bibles in there. There was this whole family that was here. They were basically brand new. And it was just really neat uh, to meet up with that family and talk with them. And so if you don't have a Bible, just go in there afterwards and we'll put one in your hands. Uh, before I get into that, I just want everybody to know that uh, Friday... Our uh, school, the baseball team, I happen to be the varsity baseball coach. We won our first uh, game of the year, okay? Beat, uh, beat uh, Riverbank High, okay? 18 to 5. It was brutal. It was brutal. Coach, appreciate you a bunch. Uh, uh, so, so here's the deal. Next, uh, th this coming week, okay, on Thursday... We play my alma mater, Grace Davis, we're coach, uh, coached, and love to have you come out at 3.30, free Cracker Jacks, you come out, root on the home team, <laughs> enjoy, uh, enjoy some great weather, and watch uh, your pastor lose his mind when a kid blows it, or does something, <laughs> it's a high school baseball game, I'm going to die right out there in the third base coaching box someday, just boom, dead, over a high school game. And it'll be my own son who does, is my undoing. Um, I get home and I'll, I always, you know, just kind of debrief the game and all the stuff that goes on. And I think back, my wife will come in, she's one of the scorekeepers, and she'll say, uh, you really got upset over, you know, this moment. And I said, well, yeah. And she goes, really? In the grand scheme of life, was that, was that big a deal? And sitting in my living room, you go, No. It's not that big a deal, but at that moment, oh, man, I, oh, praise God for forgiveness. Um, so as I begin uh, our, our message today, I want to kind of do a little uh, Bible review for you, okay? I want to kind of explain uh, the, the, the Bible to you. I think it will help us understand the, the text that we're going to be in. The Bible is made up of 66 different books. It, it, it's really not one book. It, it's 66 different books. It's almost like a library, a small library. And it's kind of put in two halves. You got the Old Testament or the Old Covenant, and you got the New Testament or the New Covenant. And the Old Testament begins with the book of Genesis, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all the way through to the last book of the Old Testament, which is the book of Malachi. And those 39 books have one theme, and that theme is Jesus is coming. The Messiah is coming. The Savior is coming. Now, obviously, in the Old Testament, they didn't know what the Messiah's name was or whatever, we know today, but that's the theme. Messiah is coming. Savior is coming. Then when you get to the 27 books in the New Testament, they begin with Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then the book of Acts where we see the birth of the church, 
And the theme of the 27 books in the New Testament is Jesus has come. Matthew tells us today in the town of David, a Savior has been born for you. And so you have these, these, 39, these 39 books in the Old Testament, the Savior's coming. 27 books in the New Testament, the Savior has come, Jesus has come. The theme of all 66 books of the Bible really is Jesus. It's a book about Jesus. That's what this is. It's a book about the Savior, the Messiah, the one that we know who came 2,000 years ago and was born in that little town called Bethlehem. Now, 2 Timothy chapter 3 says this about the Bible, that all Scripture, every bit of it, all, all the, the 39 books in the Old Testament all the 27 books in the New Testament, all scripture is inspired by God. And that word inspired there, God breathed, uh, basically means that the Holy Spirit supernaturally came upon the writers of those 39 books in the Old Testament and those 27 books in the New Testament God supernaturally came upon them and they wrote the very words that God wanted them to write. Now they did it in their own personalities, which is why sometimes you can read one book in the Bible and man, it seems like that guy had an edge to him or a bite to him and maybe somebody else seemed a little nicer or kinder or more gentle or whatever. That was just simply due to their personalities. But the Bible says that all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and it teaches us to do what is right. God uses it. The 39 books in the Old Testament, the 27 books in the New Testament, God uses it, the word of God, to, to, to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. And so when I say, or Lonnie says, or Joel says, one of the teaching pastors says, take your Bibles and turn to, in this case, the book of Ephesians. Wow, that's a pretty weighty statement. It's sad that you don't hear that statement very much in churches anymore. But here at Big Valley, you do. In fact, we, we want to put the Word of God into your hands if you do not own a copy of the Bible, and that's why we give them away here on Sunday mornings. Now, D.L. Moody said this about the Bible. It's kind of a famous quote. He said, the Bible wasn't written to answer your questions, but it was written to change your life. Now, now the Bible will answer lots of questions, but that's not why God wrote these 39 books in the Old Testament or these 27 books in the New Testament. He didn't write them to answer all your questions. He wrote them that your life might be transformed forever, that you might understand the fact that God has created you. And we read that in Genesis 1 and 2. And that sin has impacted all of our lives. You read that in Genesis 3. That, that sin has separated us from God, which is why we needed the Savior, which is why God was going to send the Savior. When you understand that the Savior came and 
lived for 33 years and died on a cross and was put into a tomb. And three days later, he walked out of that tomb proving who he was. And that was the Savior. And that if you'd put your trust in him, while well, your life would be changed or transformed forever. That's why God has left us the scriptures. And in this series that we're in, in, in Ephesians, I think the five verses that we're going to look at today might best describe all 66 books of the Bible. I think, I think it gives us, just these five verses give us a, a real handle on why and what this book was all about. So let's read those five verses together, okay? Ephesians chapter 2, look at verse 1. <coughs> <coughs> God says to all of us through the pen of our brother Paul, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loves us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. And we'll stop right there. I want everybody to zero in on verse one again. Once you were dead. God says there was a moment when you were dead. Some of you are going to find out that you're still dead right now. Oh, your heart's beating, but you're dead. God didn't say that you were having a bad day. God didn't say that you were sick. God didn't say that you were depressed. God didn't say that you were tired. God didn't say that you were confused. God said you were dead. You were dead. And here's the thing about a dead person. A dead person can't do anything to change their situation. When you're dead, you're totally helpless. When you're dead, you're totally powerless. When you're dead, you're totally at the mercy of somebody else. When you're dead, you can't resuscitate yourself, can you? And the Bible is crystal clear that everybody in this room was spiritually dead at some point in their life. We were all walking zombies, according to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. So with this as a <laughs> backdrop, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask six questions, okay? 
And uh, I got the answer to five of them. And as I ask these six questions and answer these five questions, I, I think it helps us understand these five verses maybe a little bit more. The sixth question is one that only you can answer. And so let's jump right into this, okay? Let's look at question number one. What exactly does it mean when Paul says once you were dead? What does that mean? You see, one of the things about the word of God is um, it's a good thing to read through the Bible. I've done it, I can't count how many times. It's a good thing to do. I encourage you all to do it. But there's also this idea of meditating on the word of God. And that's different than just, you know, I read through it. When you meditate on the word of God, it's not about how fast you get through it. It's about going, whoa, whoa, hold on here. Whoa, what does that mean? You see, there are moments and there are phrases where you go, wait, wait, I don't need to move on. I just need to stay right there. And one of those phrases is this thought that once you were dead, what does that mean? Well, let me give you the short answer. It means that you had no relationship with the one true living God of the Bible. And it's important that you add that little phrase, the God of the Bible. For those of us that are, um, got gray hair, got hair growing out of, you know, our ears and nose, and we're at a particular age, I don't know, maybe you're getting all the AARP stuff at home now. (laughs) There was a time when I was a kid, if somebody mentioned God, you didn't need to say the God of the Bible. I didn't know the Lord, but when someone talked about God, it was, a, it was just a, assumed that everybody was talking about the God of the Bible. That's not true anymore today. The culture has shifted radically. And so when you talk about God, you can't make the assumption that the person you're talking to is thinking about the God of the Bible. They could be thinking about some other God. And it's really important, especially as you're dealing with a younger generation, when you start to talk about God, you immediately think of the God of the Bible. They don't. And so it's very important that we distinguish what we're talking about. And so when the Bible says that once you were dead, it means that you had no relationship with the God who's revealed between these two leather-bound covers. There's lots of gods out there, small g. But there's only one true living God, capital G. It means that you were separated from the God of the Bible. It means that you were dead to the God of the Bible. It means that you were numb, if you will, to the God of the Bible. It means that you had no capacity to respond to the one true living God. Yes, your physical heart was beating, but your spiritual heart was dead. 
A spiritually dead person rejects the God of the Bible. A spiritually dead person denies the existence of the God of the Bible. A spiritually dead person actually works against the purposes of the God of the Bible. In fact, listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 8. He was talking to a group of unbelievers. A bunch of people who did not believe in the God of the scriptures. And Jesus said, if God were your father, you would love me because I have come to you from God. I'm not here on my own, but he's the one who sent me. Why can't you understand what I'm saying? It's because you can't even hear me. For you are the children of your father, the devil, and you love to do the evil things he does. That, that's pretty heavy. And I know for some of you that makes you feel really uncomfortable. And I'm not trying to hurt anybody's feelings. I, I'm not trying to poke anybody in the eye. I'm just, I'm just sharing with you what, what Jesus said. I know you don't think of yourself as being, you know, a child of the devil or the enemy. I know it. For a lot of years, I was not a follower of Jesus. Never once did I wake up in the morning and get ready to go to school or work or whatever and think, you know what, man, today I'm looking forward to hanging out with my father, the devil. I didn't believe in God. I didn't believe in the devil. But just because I didn't believe in them, didn't mean it wasn't true. Jesus gives us uh, some really, really weighty information there. That if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're not a follower of the one true living God revealed between these two leather-bound covers, you have a spiritual father. That is the enemy himself. Now Jesus also made this powerful statement in Matthew chapter 12. He said, anyone who isn't with me opposes me. Anybody who's not a follower of mine opposes me. Anybody who hasn't surrendered their life over to me opposes me. And anyone who isn't working with me, anybody who's, who's not a follower, not a, not a believer with me is actually working against me. Wow. Never once before I gave my life to Christ did I think I was working against Jesus. Never once did I wake up and think to myself, okay, what, what can I do today to thwart the plans that Jesus has, you know, for, you know, Modesto or for California or whatever? Never. In fact, I would have, you know, you... You Christians all want to gather on a Sunday and wave your arms around? Do it. I don't care. You want to be foolish enough to pull your wallet out of your pocket and throw some money in a little green bag that goes by? Go for it. In fact, you know what? I like the idea that you guys are helping the working poor. Good Sam, 300 new people every month we help here. Man, I'm all for that. Keep it up. Never once would I have thought of myself as being in opposition to Jesus. But the reality is, I was. Those are the words of Jesus. Those aren't my words. Those are his words. Basically, he's saying, 
You're either for me or you're against me. There's no middle ground. There, there's no Switzerland. <laughs> wow. I want you to know that the writer of Ephesians, Paul, there was a time in his life when he was spiritually dead. There was a time in Peter, James, and John's life, some of the more famous apostles, disciples, there was a time in their life when they were spiritually dead. There was a time in Mary's life when she was spiritually dead. There was a time in my own life when I was spiritually dead. Some of you in this room were here when I became alive. And I'm gonna talk more about that in a little bit. So question number one is, what exactly does it mean when Paul says once you were dead? Well, the answer is it means you had no relationship with the God of the Bible. You were dead spiritually, okay? Question number two, how exactly did this death occur? That's a good question to ask. It's a good question that we as believers ought to be able to answer. And the short answer, if you will, is this spiritual death occurred when Adam sinned. You have to go all the way back to the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, and in chapters one and two, we see God creating you know everything, he creates human life, we were made in his image, and you get to chapter three, and chapter three tells us about sin, how sin entered into the equation of life. Adam makes the decision to blow God off. Adam makes the decision to disobey God. Adam makes the decision that, you know what, I'm not gonna follow your teachings, I'm gonna be the CEO of my own life. I'm gonna make my own decisions about life. And he disobeys God and at that moment, we all have what is called uh, an Adamic nature. That's the big theological term. We all have inherited a sinful nature. At the very moment that microscopic egg of your mother and the microscopic sperm of your father got together at that very moment, not only was the genetic makeup there of how tall you'd be, how short you'd be, what color your hair would be, what color your eyes would be, all that kind of stuff, but there was also a sinful nature at the moment of conception. A baby, as it spends nine months with inside, inside of its mother's womb, already has a sinful nature. A baby isn't born, and then there's some moment down the road, you know, when they're four months old or eight months old, where they finally, you know, sin, and now they're a sinful person. No. They have a sinful nature at the moment of conception. And it's all because of what took place in Genesis chapter three, which is why God says, I'm gonna send a savior. 
I'm, I'm going to send the Messiah. We needed one because of sin. And we'll talk more about that in, in just a, a, a little bit. Romans chapter 3 says, For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standards. And you need to understand that sin is at the very heart of everything that goes on in your life. It's at the very heart of everything that takes place within your family. Sin is at the very heart of all of your friendships. Sin is at the very heart of the place that you work. You see, every broken marriage, every shattered friendship, every argument, every disagreement, every evil thought, every evil word, every evil deed, every good deed undone, every good word unsaid can be attributed to sin, can be attributed to what took place in Genesis chapter 3. Here's the bottom line, and I think it's in your notes, I think. <clears throat> because of sin, there are tears and pain and war and fighting and anxiety and discord and unrest and fear and worry and sickness and death and famine and earthquakes and pollution and anything else that mars the planet. But worst of all, sin brought death, physical death, and way more weighty spiritual death to all that have come before us and will bring death to all of us someday in the future. And it's important we all understand that. You see, we as believers, because God has given us his word, we have an answer to the question of evil. We know why there's evil in the world. And it's because of what took place in Genesis 3. Now, you may not like the answer. The world may not like our answer. But we have an answer as to why there's such crummy things that go on, not only in our own town or state or nation, but all over the, the planet. And it all comes down to sin. Now, this brings me to question number three. <laughs> what exactly is it? What is sin? Well, the short answer is sin is falling short of God's standard. Once again, the Bible says that we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glorious standard. You see, when you choose to live in a way that's contrary to the word of God, that's sin. In fact, there are some places today in some nations where they will have archery competitions and so down here, imagine, you know, there's the red bullseye, and then you got all these circles that go around. And down here, you'll have somebody who takes their arrow, you know, and they'll shoot their arrow. And if it doesn't hit the bullseye, maybe it hits the one layer out or two layers out or three circles out or whatever. If you don't hit the bullseye, the referee will hold up a sign and go, Sin! It means you missed the bullseye. That's what it means. Sin! If you hit the bullseye, okay, you, you, you got it. If you missed the bullseye, sin! And what God's saying is to us through his word is, you missed the bullseye. The bullseye is perfection. 
Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the bullseye. Well, guess what? Anybody in here is going to stand up and go, well, sin, <laughs> I missed the bullseye. Everybody misses the bullseye. We've all sinned, all of us. There's only one person who never sinned, and that was Jesus. And the reason why we all sin is because of what took place with Adam. One guy infected everybody. Just like one man can cure everybody. The Bible says this in 1 John chapter 1. He says, if we claim to be without sin, we just deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. I've never met anybody, never anybody, who was an unbeliever or a believer who would look me in the eye and say, I've never sinned. They may not have used that word. When I was a kid, hey, look, I didn't know what the word sin meant. That was a Bible word. It was a biblical word, a church word. But I knew I had goofed up. I knew I had done evil. That was the one part of the gospel story you didn't have to explain to me more than once. I got it. I had said a lot of really evil things in my life. I had done a lot of really evil things in my life. I've done some things that just, I'm horrified even thinking about them today. And I did them 50 years ago. I knew I had blown it. And everybody in this room, whether you know Christ or not, you know you're sinful. You may not use that word, but you've said things that you knew were wrong. You've done things that you knew were wrong. You thought about things that you knew were wrong. And the reason why you knew they were wrong was because of this beautiful gift that God gave you, and that's your conscience. Your conscience is there to remind you of the truth of what happened in Genesis chapter 3, that you're sinful. It's a constant reminder when you, oh, I shouldn't have thought that, I shouldn't have done that, and you feel that guilt. It's one of those pesky things that people who believe in evolution have a hard time describing how we ended up with a conscience. John said this about sin. He said, the person who sins breaks God's law. Yes, sinning is living against God's law. That, 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 that kind of boils down what sin is, I think, is when you break God's law. And everybody in here has broken God's law. Everybody. There's nobody that can stand up and say, man, I've lived this thing out perfectly. I certainly can't. <coughs> you see, sin at its core is living as if there is no God. In other words, sin denies the reality of God's authority. So here's how it works. If you don't believe in God, you certainly aren't going to you know, live according to his word, right? I mean, if you don't believe in God, you're not gonna, you know, who cares? Who cares about this book, right? They don't care. Somebody who believes 
or somebody who doesn't believe in God isn't going to obey what God has to say because they don't even believe in God. And if you don't believe in God or the, his authority in your life, who does that put in charge of your life? Who, who does that put in charge of determining what's right and what's wrong or what's moral or immoral? If you don't believe in God, you don't believe in the authority of his word, who is in charge? Who does make the rules? You do. You get to make the rules. In other words, you get to be God. If you don't believe in him and you don't believe in the authority of his word, then here's the deal. You get to make up your own rules, right? Nobody tells you what to do. Nobody. James chapter 4 says this, remember it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not to do it. God's told us what to do. And when you make the choice not to do it, it's sin. Almost every day, or not, maybe not every day, but Lonnie and I and the other pastors here, um, we meet with people. It could be over coffee. It could be in our offices or wherever it is. And I'll bet once a day or at least five times a week, I'm sitting across from somebody, and I'm going to share with them, here's what God says about divorce. Here's what God says about how to, you know, I don't know, raise your children Here's what God says about how to handle your finances. Here's what God has to say about whatever it is. And at that moment, I shut my Bible, Lonnie shuts his Bible, and we walk out of the door. And that person then gets to make a decision. Am I going to obey what God says? Or... Am I going to be the CEO of my own life and do what Adam did? And just make any, thank you, Lonnie, thank you, Rick, but I'm not doing it. Everybody has to do that. The beautiful thing is a lot of people, when they hear what God's word has to say, they, they go, man, That's going to be hard, but I'm going to do it. Praise the Lord. But then there's also a lot of people who go, man, I don't care what God's word says. I'm not doing it. I'm not going to do it. Once again, I want you to look at verse 1 of our text, okay? God says, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins... You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world. You Obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He's the spirit at work in those whose hearts refuse to obey God. What does this passage mean? What does it mean when it says you used to live in sin, obeying the devil, the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God? Well, as I said earlier, it simply means that before a person becomes a follower of Jesus, they're in bondage to worldly ways or worldly teachings or worldly philosophies. They have no choice. 
whether it be society's opinions, fleshly pleasures, global purposes, governmental standards, Planned Parenthood type values, public education. The Bible clearly teaches that before you give your life to Jesus, when you're dead to God, you're in bondage to somebody else's thinking or somebody else's values or whatever. And thank God for those of you who have made the decision that I'm going to go into some of those places to be salt and light. And the reason why you're needed to be salt and light there is because they're dark. You don't have to go be salt and light in a place full of salt and light. (laughs) You need to be salt and light in dark places, decaying places. And thank God for those of you that are in some of those places. Because you're needed there. Desperately needed there. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. The God of this age, little g. Do you understand that there's a power at work here on planet Earth? Paul says, the God of this age. He's at work. John put it this way in 1 John. He says, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world (coughs) is under the control of the evil one. Whoa! There is a force out there that energizes all of these systems that we have to navigate. It's it's the, the power source And again, thank you for those of you that have stepped up to say, you know what, I understand who's in charge and I'm going to go in and I'm going to bring Christ into that classroom. I'm going to bring Christ into that situation because, wow, Christ is needed. Jesus himself said this, the time for judging this world has come when Satan, the ruler of this world, will be cast out. Make no mistake about it. There is a power source out there energizing all of these secular entities. And in a lot of ways, we can see how he's the power behind a lot of really crummy churches that are out there. So this brings me to question number four. Can a spiritually dead person be made alive? And the answer is yes. When a person puts their trust in God's son, Jesus Christ. There was a a day when John the Baptist was baptizing and there were lots of people standing in the water. I don't know, they were on the riverbank and all of that. And Jesus showed up and John sees him standing in the crowd and this is what he said. He said, I baptize with water, but right here in the crowd is is someone you don't recognize. Though his ministry follows mine, I'm not even worthy to be his slave and to untie the straps of his sandals. This encounter took place in Bethany on the area east of the Jordan River where John was baptizing. 
The next day, Jesus or John saw Jesus coming towards him and he said, look. Imagine all these people standing around. Look, and he points to Jesus, the lamb. He said, the lamb of God <coughs> takes away the sin of the world. You see, our problem is sin, Genesis 3. It's infected all of us. It made us dead to God, the God of the scriptures. We, we had to have something that took care of sin. That was the infection we all have, you know, been, been goofed up with. And Jesus comes and he's the antidote. He's the prescription. He's the only one who can take away the sin. Look at verse four and five of our text, Ephesians two. It says, but God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave life when he raised Christ from the dead. We're told in Genesis one and two, or Genesis two, that we're made in God's image. So it makes us different than everything else that God created. And when sin enters into the equation in Genesis 3, sin marred the image. God so loved us because he created us different than everything else. We were made in his image. He loved us so much. He says, I'm sending you a savior. I'm sending you a Messiah. Because you're made in my image. I'm going to send the cure to this problem of sin that has made you dead to me. Colossians chapter 2 says, you were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature. And because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all your sins. That's what we need. We need something that counteracts what took place in Genesis 3. The sin. And being a good person doesn't do that. You can do, you can do all the good things you want. Doesn't take care of the problem of sin. Giving great sums of money to the church doesn't do that. There's only one thing that takes care of the problem of sin, and that's Jesus. You see, at the moment you gave your life over to Jesus, a lot of amazing things happened. Your sins were forgiven, you were set free from the bondage of the evil one. And as our text makes crystal clear, you were brought back from the dead and you were made alive in Christ. Now this brings me to question number five. What happens if a person rejects Jesus Christ? And the answer is, if you reject Jesus, you remain dead in your sin. You remain separated from him. You remain numb to him. 
dead to him. Yes, your physical heart is still beating. I get it. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about spiritually speaking. You may think you have a relationship with God, but according to the scriptures, you don't. There's only one way to be made alive with Christ, and that is you have to surrender your life over to him. You have to step down from the throne of leading your own life and say, Jesus, you're now the king of my life, and you bow to him. And that's when he comes into your life and he cleanses you of your, your sins. Now this brings me to question number six. <coughs> this is the only one I can't answer, and here it is. Are you dead or alive? <laughs> I know I, I, I'm I'm alive. I'm spiritually alive because I've given my life to Christ. And I want you just to think about it, yes or no. Have you given your life to Christ? Or are you still dead in your sins? You see, Jesus isn't gonna let any sin into heaven. He's not gonna do it. Thank God for that, by the way. Because if you let sin into heaven, like I often tell you, how long would it take before heaven was just like planet Earth? If he let you and I up into heaven, or just, let's just, I'm going to take Lonnie and I, just the, two, just the two of us. If he let Lonnie and I go to heaven, and there's just two of us, with our sin, it would take about 15 seconds for heaven to be as goofed up as planet Earth is. Now add all of you into it. We just cut it down to about five seconds. Who'd want to go there? We might as well stay here, right? You see, one of the beautiful things about heaven is there's no sin. It's all been dealt with by Christ. The Bible says, and this is what God has testified, that he's given us eternal life. He's given us life. He's given us the ability to be alive spiritually, and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has the life. Whoever does not have the son of God doesn't have the life. And you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure that out. It's pretty clear, isn't it? Do you have the Messiah, the Savior that God promised? Do you have the, the Savior, the, the Messiah that God sent 2,000 years ago? Jesus, do you have him? If you do, you got the life. If you don't, then you don't have the life. And I don't know why anybody wouldn't want that life. <laughs> Who wouldn't want that life? It's just a beautiful thing, this life that Jesus offers. And I know most of you here, most of you over in the venue, maybe most of you watching online, you have the life. But maybe there's one or two or six of you that don't. And I just want to encourage you. When we're done here in a moment, I'm going to ask Lonnie to come up. Pastor Lonnie, he's going to close our gathering. <coughs> if you're over in the venue, you're in here, and you want the life, you want to invite Christ into your life, you want to step off of the you know, the throne, you know, being the leader of your life and let Jesus be the leader. All you got to do is go into the altar room and our 
pastors are in there, some of our elders are in there, and just say, hey, I want the life. Just all you got to do is walk up to one of them and say, I want the life. And we'd love to lead you in a prayer. And it's really as simple as that. And you can walk out of here, not only alive physically, but alive spiritually. I don't, like I said, I don't know who wouldn't, who wouldn't want that. So why don't you stand and Lonnie, why don't you close our time in prayer, okay?